News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, today is International Women's Day, and you're going to be hearing a lot about it. And we are going to look at the issues facing women from a couple of different angles this morning. Now, Canada has tried to make strides to close that gender wage gap in recent years, but... The pandemic has done a lot to kind of set that back. Coast Capital Savings is launching a campaign to bolster support for businesses owned and operated by women. So we thought, let's learn more about that. Joining us is Larkin McKenzie asked as a director of the Business Women's Network at Coast Capital. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Hi, Simi. Thanks for having me. So is this a new initiative that you decided to launch this year? It is, yeah. So our uh, Coast Capital Savings, obviously, with everything that's gone on in the last year, realized that there's there's a real need for additional support for women, given the impact that the pandemic has had on on our gender. Right. So how does that support, how will that manifest itself in this program? So Keeper on the Map is focused on ensuring that we are um, sharing, so yeah, telling the story of women, women-led businesses, really uh, focused on talking about the effects that the pandemic have had on women. You know, that the women have lost their jobs at a rate of 60, 60% greater than their male counterparts. And we're really focused on the impact that this has. There's the short term of that job loss. There's the, the longer term, you know, sort of five to 10 years, we're probably going to see quite a dip in women in leadership because we're, we're seeing that as a real a real issue here. And if we look further down the line, what does this tell our next generations? Seeing that um, mommy lost her job during the pandemic, but that that wasn't the same effect to daddy's role. Right. So like we talk about these things that have happened, you feel that they're going to have a long-term impact on the workforce? Absolutely. I mean, the, the it's almost dangerous to get into the numbers too much, but the one that I always stick to, because it's, it's just sad enough, but it also really resonates, is that this past year, the effect of the pandemic has pushed the, that, that magical year of gender equity by another 10 years. So for one year to impact our gender equity struggle by you know, tenfold is just shocking and, and really brings it home for all of us. So then how do you provide that support? So Coast has created a, uh, a resources hub. So what it is, is it's on coastcapitalsavings.com slash keeper on the map. We have a series of ways that women can seek support. So what, whether that's for mental health, whether that's for financial, um, financial questions, Q&As, et cetera, because th- these are the things that often keep us up at 3 a.m. And also really making sure that we're supporting our women-led businesses. So those, those are the three main areas right. that we have this hub where these resources are available for women. Right. So Larkin, does that mean that women have to reach out? Because that might be the tricky part, right? Well, we also are encouraging everyone to use their social media to to amplify the messages of the Keeper on the Map campaign. It's very much around awareness, having the conversation and letting these women know that we have the resources available to them. And so how and long course, will this go on for? The campaign is, um, I would say it's, it's interesting that we call it a campaign because we're actually looking to turn it into an, an ongoing resource. Oh. So for us, this isn't, this isn't a one and done. It's not a happy International Women's Day and tomorrow we'll be focused on something else. This is an area of focus that, that Coast has introduced and will continue to support. 
I guess it must be difficult too, is getting that message to women, right? That they've been so beaten down by the last year in terms of having to look after kids and, and, you know, have that focus on their jobs, perhaps, perhaps they lost their jobs. Uh, How do you also build them up then? How do you get them the confidence to say, yes, I'm going to try this again? Well, it's amazing how much having those conversations, we've, we've really seen that at Coast personally, but also from a, from an organizational standpoint that starting to create that space where the conversations um, happen makes the women feel supported. Um, We've, we've been reaching out through the campaign to a number of our women owned businesses to share with them what resources we have available and to include them in our conversation. So it's been wonderful to bring some of these women into the fold of the business women's network and to start having these conversations because it can be very lonely to be uh, a female entrepreneur. And so one of the key things that we've been able to do over the last week, and this is the beginning of it, is to be able to include these women in these conversations so that they don't feel as isolated, so that they understand that there is a community. Because Coast is very, you know, as a a purpose-led organization, one of our goals or our main goal is to create this community for our members. We don't see it as members in Coast. We see it as we are all part of one team. And so we want these women to feel part of our team. Right. And where can people find out more information? Coastcapitalsavings.com slash keep her on the map. And there's also a social media campaign right now, hashtag keep her on the map that they will see. All right. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Simi. Appreciate your time. That's Larkin McKenzie asked, who's a director of the Business Women's Network at Coast Capital Savings, where they are launching a campaign, and they hope that this is an ongoing thing, not just a campaign, to help bolster support for businesses that are owned and operated by women. So like a hub to get them more support. Uh, and it sounds like right now they could use that. The last year pandemic has been very hard economically, but particularly for women. They are the ones that we are losing out of the workforce. This is Mornings with Simi. Do you need something to look forward to out there? I think a lot of people do. Well, how about getting out and about into the outdoors this summer and spring? Camping reservations for BC Park starts at 7 o'clock this morning, so get ready for that. And you should also get your outdoor gear ready too, because remember, last year it became impossible to get camping and outdoor gear because everybody else had the same idea. So this morning we're going to help you not make that same mistake. The annual sportsman's show in Abbotsford has actually moved online this year. So great idea for you to check that out. Joining us now is show manager Les Trendle to talk more about how all of this works. Good morning, Les. Good morning, Simi. How tricky was this moving the show online? Well, it was uh, actually it wasn't as as, uh, tricky as we thought. Uh, We know the challenges uh, with COVID uh, came up and we thought, how can we still get to uh, our, our valued customers that love the Sportsman Show every year because this year was going to be the 30th anniversary of the BC Sportsman Show. And so what happened is that we looked at it and said, um, let's go online because a lot of, uh, a lot of companies were, were doing that. And we said, okay, we're going to do something a little different. Instead of having a virtual show, where a virtual show is you plan the days of the show. Usually the show is three or four days. Um, and people have to register to go online. And then only on certain day or certain times, um, you can view the show. We said, let's make it a little, little better. Instead of just going three days, we're going to go for a whole month. So what we decided to do is uh, contact our, 
our valued uh, exhibitors, uh, and they bought into it. We have 115 exhibitors that are on, on our show. Uh, and it's uh, simply a click of the, the button, and uh, there you get to see um, the, the exhibitors, the seminars, the prizes. Uh, it's like a, a live show. But, but right. you're, looking at, you're looking at a laptop. <laughs> right. Which is really how a lot of people like to do things these days, right? I'm one of those people where I'd like it all available right in front of me. So people can still look at all the equipment, all the new stuff. Like That's always what these shows are about, right? It's seeing the coolest, latest, neatest gadgets. You've, you hit the nail on the head. You know, I mean, the outdoors uh, crowd, I mean, this year or last year, this year, has been phenomenal for sales for for boating, ATV, fishing, hunting, anything outdoors. People cannot get enough of. Uh, and you're right. You're you mentioned before going online the camping BC. Um, I was one of those uh, last year that waited three and a half hours and crashed how many times before I got a camping spot uh, in the Okanagan. Uh, but we enjoy it, and this year we already got ours uh, planned. Because the nice thing about it is that you can go online, look through all our exhibitors, and you can go and see who is going to be at the show, and you can book right online. Right. What's yeah. the hot stuff, Les? Like, what, what's really in demand these days? In demand is, uh, is camping. Uh, getting a camping spot or location. Um, not only just camping, but also uh, the fishing resorts uh, and the hunting uh, outfitters. Um, so people people want to do something, and it's getting booked so fast that um, they'll do anything. Uh, get get on their quads and go up country. Um, go go fishing for the first time. We have uh, uh, fishing um, exhibitors, um, but but lodges and resorts are booking up very quickly because they know they can't get right. uh, a spot on the BC camping website. Right. So what about equipment? What about things like sleeping bags and stuff like that? I know that was really popular last year. Everything is, uh, yeah, I mean, we have Skyview Camping uh, is involved with our show, and they have, uh, we have some great prizes from them. Uh, we have also uh, Western Canoeing. They have um, um, a paddleboard as a prize, but also prizes like Fred's Custom Tackle. We have over $9,000 worth of prizing from Fred's Custom Tackle, anything from uh, wader boots to fishing pole, uh, fishing rods, uh, reels, tackle, you name it. Uh, anything equipment that they'll see right. online, uh, the actual pictures. I mean, that's what the nice thing about a, a live show is that people want to see it, feel it, touch it. Yeah. Um, that's so here true. they can't, but of course they can see the, the photograph and they can then get involved, get involved right to the, the client himself. You think the industry is prepared this time less? Cause I know there was a lot of supply shortages last year. And do you think that this time around the suppliers have said, okay, we get it. There's going to be demand for this. I think they are. I, I think they've learned and, um, they're saying, hey, we're, we're prepared. We know we're going to have a great summer because uh, people want to get outdoors. There's no doubt about it. That's where we can social distance as well. Uh, so let's get out there and uh, book these spots. And uh, they are ready to uh, take orders, you might say. <laughs> well, okay, tell me again. How can people go online then to the BC Sportsman Show? Very simple. Um, www.bcsportsmanshow.ca and they just uh, uh, click on our website. It goes to, uh, and, and you just, with your finger, just go click to uh, digital marketing. And up comes uh, the screen of uh, showing, like I said, 115 different uh, exhibitors. And they're alphabetical. 
uh, listed. Also, we have 25 categories that they can choose from. Archery, boating, uh, fishing, hunting, uh, lodges, resorts, outfitters, tourism. Uh, so we, we've also segregated them to different categories if you're interested in a, in a certain type of right. outdoor activity. Well, this sounds great. Les, thank you yeah. so much for telling us about it this morning. Our pleasure. Thank you, Simi, uh, for the opportunity for us to uh, promote. Uh, and you know what? This past weekend would have been our, our, our live show. Oh, <laughs> I know. It It feels like everybody's marking that one year anniversary. Like a lot of people remember, oh, "Oh, what was I doing a year ago? There were a lot of people at your show last year for sure. Oh, there was. And we look look forward to a a live show next year. (laughs) So do I. Thanks for that, Les. Awesome. Thank you, Simi. Les Trendell is the show manager of the BC Sportsman Show and their digital marketing platform. They are going online this year, which means that you can check out all the cool stuff, the prizes, the new things, you name it just by, you know, Googling BC Sportsman Show and going online to their platform. And I think I heard him say there that they're going to keep it up for 30 days. Uh, So that's a lot longer usually than the Sportsman Show. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about International Women's Day here. And we're going to talk about the gaming industry. Why? Well, the number of women playing video games has increased dramatically in the last decade. Now, usually those gaming consoles were made by and then marketed to men, right? But studies now show that women are just as interested in those consoles. So we want to talk to a woman working within that gaming industry. Joining us now is Erin McGeckin, who's a narrative designer with Eastside Games. Erin, thanks for being with us. Hi, Simi. Thank you for having me. What does a narrative designer do? Um, that's a good question. A little bit of everything. Uh, we do. Uh, I do a lot of writing, but then I also do a lot of game design work. So I actually get down in the weeds with the designers and figure out uh, some of the core functions of the game and how the story uh, interconnects uh, with those uh, design elements. And how long have you been doing this for? I've been doing this for three years. I'm still pretty green. Um, I came from a background in film and television where I worked for about uh, 10 to 15 years, uh, mostly focused in reality TV and some comedy development. And yeah, I've just, I've fallen in love with games. I've always been a gamer, so. Okay, well, that's interesting. That's what we're talking about today, right? Are you seeing more and more women are now saying, hey, listen, I've always been a gamer. I love games. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I grew up playing all kinds of games. And, you know, I think in the 70s, 80s, 90s, games were made by men and primarily targeted towards men. But it I think there were a lot of female gamers playing games even back then. I know I was, and um, even in the 80s, I think that uh, there was, I was reading recently that something like 20% of all arcade gamers were women, so go figure. We've been, we've been gaming for a long time. Well, yeah, I was thinking about that. Like I gamed when I was a kid, right? Had an Atari, yeah. paid, played all those games, yeah. loved them to pieces, nice. but somewhere along the way, it seemed to become this thing that everybody thought only men were doing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really funny how that market just kind of got forgotten about. And, and I think, um, you know, more and more game developers uh, nowadays are realizing and recognizing that, uh, that gamers are, we're a pretty gender diverse bunch and, and women definitely uh, make up a huge part of that, uh, that gamer spectrum. Right. What's it like though working in the industry? That must have been tough to break into. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's definitely all facets of entertainment are, are difficult to get to for sure. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I worked really hard and uh, had a lot of good connections and uh, tip of the hat to uh, Josh Nilsson, who is one of our co-founders who uh, brought me in, brought me under his wing and, um, and helped uh, get me to where I am today. So, 
So what is the influence then of women in gaming, Aaron? Because, you know, when I think back, I, I'm sure they thought that Ms. Pac-Man was a big deal when we didn't really need Ms. Pac-Man, right? You just need <laughs> no, a but great you know video what? game. <laughs> it's funny that you bring up Ms. Pac-Man because that's like, that's a key example, right? I think about like women in games and it's not about, it's not about making games that are targeted or marketed towards women. It's about making games that are inclusive uh, within the games themselves, so seeing representation of women and other gender diverse peoples, but then also uh, about the teams behind those games, building those games. But the funny thing about Ms. Pac-Man is, um, I'm going to I'm going to totally butcher this. Toro, Iwa- Toro Iwatani, who is <laughs> the creator of Pac-Man, um, he was one of the first game devs to recognize that women were playing his game, and he created uh, the second version, which was Ms. Pac-Man, and. It's maybe a very rudimentary example of including a female protagonist within a game, but right. it's there. And that was 1981. So. Right. And so here we are then, 40 years later from that. Uh, yes. What, what yeah. kind of influence do women have now in the creation of games? Like, what would you want to make sure gets into a game? Um, well, I think it's, like I said, it's, it's about representation within the game and behind the scenes. So, for example, um, we are getting ready, Eastside Games is getting ready to launch a brand new title, um, original title with our partners at Truly Social Games Vancouver, uh, which I can't get into too much detail yet, but if everybody keeps an eye on our social media accounts over the next couple of months, you're going to see some stuff pop up. And uh, this game I co-created uh, with their narrative designer, Mallory Gibson, and we wanted to build a game that was uh, diverse and inclusive AF, as the kids are saying these days. And I think we did that. We have an incredible cast of characters that prominently feature uh, women and those on the gender spectrum, as well as a wide variety of radically diverse, disabled, and generally underrepresented folks. Right. And behind the scenes, we drove the development of that game uh, by way of an incredibly diverse team of game developers, and most of whom are actually women. So are there some games, though, Aaron, that you look at and you go, oh, boy, uh, obviously they needed some more influence from some different groups in that game. Like, that just went off the rails. Yeah, I think, you know, I think we're all still learning and growing as an industry. I think there's definitely examples that, you know, uh, where um, we could try harder, we could do better. And I think that a lot of games companies are recognizing that now, and they're definitely working hard to push that bar and have that representation behind the scenes and more inclusion in their games as well. Right. I guess part of the problem was that some companies were just making way too much money off something like Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, it's funny too, is a lot of people are realizing that there's this is a huge market. It's a huge untapped market. There's lots of money to be made uh, from all kinds of audiences. So it's it's not only just uh, it's not only just the right thing to do from from a good moral standpoint, but it's a profitable thing to do. So, so would you say yeah. that this is something that a career that young women should definitely consider? Oh, ab- absolutely, yes. You know, um, Eastside Games. We're a part of Leaf Mobile, which is a Canadian group of game studios, and it's our combined vision to disrupt the mobile games industry and have more female representation within our games and within our studios. And, you know, Leaf is focused really hard on improving gender representation in the games industry. And I, I think absolutely young girls everywhere should know that mobile games are a great career paths and they should absolutely follow those technical and creative passions. I love it. Aaron, thank you so yeah. much for joining us.
Yeah, thank you for having me. And best of luck. That's Erin McGeckin, who's a narrative designer with East Side Games, talking about women in the gaming industry. Hard to believe that even, well, Erin said she'd been there three years, three, four years ago. That would have been a very, you know, controversial thing. And now it's becoming just more and more just like a regular thing. And why shouldn't it be? This is Mornings with Simi. You know, I'm so lucky to be in this line of work, whereas if we come across anybody interesting, we invite them on, we have a conversation with them, we get to pick their brain. It's a great job, but not everybody out there can kind of do that. I'm sure you come across someone fascinating and wish that, you know, you could do the same thing. Well, the Human Library Project actually lets you do that. Wanted to talk about how it works now. So joining us is Jordy Matheson, the ZZ Theatre producer. Good morning, Jordy. Good morning. What is the Human Library? The Human Library is a it is a, a an event, a, a community performance experience um, that actually began in Copenhagen, Denmark. Um, there was a theater troupe called Stop the Violence that um, experienced, uh, one of their friends had experienced a hate crime. And the the group felt that um, actions like that, um, those violent actions of hate, uh, happen because of breakdowns in communication and lack and a lack of empathy. Right. So they created this event called the Human Library, which pretty much um, involves finding human books uh, who are storytellers who then share their story one-on-one with uh, a reader um, who checks out that book. And um, they share a true, genuine story from their life. Right. So when you say reader, you put that in quotation marks, right? Because essentially it's learning about history or something from a person who has experienced it rather than reading a book. Exactly. It's it's the ability to um, that valuable experience of hearing it, I guess the classic phrase of hearing it from the horse's mouth, you you get to experience it, the the story from the person who's yeah, lived it. Right. And uh, then the vital part of it is you get to ask questions um, and engage as well. Okay, so and how so, does this work then? Yeah. How do you check somebody out of the library to do this? Yeah, so so we've done the human library for about eight years. And this year we're pivoting to um, an online version uh, called Virtual Humanity, uh, you know, for reasons that I think most people could understand. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's the same concept. It's still a one-on-one experience where you get to share, where you get to hear a person's true lived experience and engage. Um, And the way that it works now, that is if you're interested in this project, uh, you just go to our ZZ Theater website and we have our virtual humanity portal and there you can um, get a day pass for one of our dates and uh, we will send you, we will communicate with you how to move forward from there. That is Um, so cool. What kind of topics though, Jordy, just give me an idea. What kind of topics can you check out of the library? Yeah. So the exciting thing about this project um, too, that's really 
unique is that when you sign when you sign a person out when you choose a storyteller all you get to choose from is their title um the title that you you see you don't get to know too much information or any bio so we have titles um such as falling in love with a narcissist um we have uh titles uh overcoming overcoming trauma um healing after foster care uh, in in DigiQueer um, in DigiQueer experience, um, we have a, a real variety of raising raising children um, right. during a pandemic. So okay. we have a real variety of of experiences being shared. It sounds like it. So, Jordy, one more time, wh- how can people participate in this? Yeah, so just go to our, our website, which is ZZ Theater, Z-E-E, Z-E-E dot uh, C-A, and, uh, and then, oh, sorry, Z-E-E, Z-E-E Theater dot C-A, right. and then you will find our virtual humanity page, and right there you will see all of our dates. We are running every weekend, right. um, March, we just started, our our first weekend was just last weekend, the 6th and 7th, and we're running next weekend, okay. the weekend after that, and the weekend after that. And you just register um, to get a day pass for one of those days. Okay. And it's, and it's only $5 off the top to um, reserve your registration for a day pass. Okay. And then we will, uh, once a person gets their day pass, we will communicate uh, further about what Love the it. next steps are to join us. Love it. Jordy, thank yeah. you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about the role of a school liaison officer. Now, these are members of the Vancouver Police Department who work out of schools that are within the Vancouver School District. Their role has come under increased scrutiny over the last year. The George Floyd case in the United States raised a lot of issues around the relationship between law enforcement and racialized communities. And yes, that conversation has been happening right here in Vancouver, too. So joining us to talk about a new review of the role that Vancouver School Board trustees are about to weigh on is Markiel Simpson, member of the BC Community Alliance Steering Community. Markiel, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So how do you see this? What do you think the Vancouver School Board should be looking at here? I think that the Vancouver School Board should be looking at the report where it says that Black and Indigenous students are experiencing racism from SLO officers or uh, either directly or they're witnessing it currently. And so what are we hearing about those roles? And you talk about that report. What are students saying? Well, the Black and Indigenous students are saying that they're they're receiving racism from police in schools and that they're witnessing other racialized students experiencing racism in schools. And I think that that should really be at the center of this conversation because that's what matters here is that we have people being paid in our schools that are doing harm to children. Now, that's not the way, obviously, that program intended to be, right? When it was first set up, do you think somewhere along the way things changed? Um, I think that the role of the SLO program has definitely been adapted over the years. I think it was supposed to be mainly educational at the beginning, but 
in certain schools, in, in certain areas, it's become more of a surveillance mechanism. Okay, so tell me about this process then that the Vancouver School Board is undertaking. Has the BC Community Alliance been a part of that? No, the BC Community Alliance wasn't a part of that. Um, we've made our position clear on multiple occasions to the Vancouver School Board, and we've also reached out to them multiple times saying we'd like to engage with them directly. And for the Argyle review, there was only a, a possibility of having one short conversation and submitting a written submission. And um, we weren't in agreement with that process because if you take a look at the review, there's there's hundreds of written submissions. But um, what they don't do is they don't center the, the voices of people being harmed. And so in that search for objectivity, um, the harm is really being reduced by some of the other stories that don't uh, aren't aren't of concern for for the program right now. Right. So, yeah. yeah. So today is when the uh, board will actually get that independent review into the program. Uh, what do you think they're going to hear? I mean, what, who did they talk to then? Well, they spoke to um, students and they spoke to um, some past staff. It was voluntary. So um, I think that they heard from majority um, white students and, and former administrators. And they, in total, 4% of the respondents identified as Black and 4% of the respondents identified as Indigenous. So are you, do you have concerns about what's going to happen tonight? Um, well, I, I guess it remains to be seen. Um, I, I'm hopeful that the VSB will make the right decision. I think that elected trustees are put in place um, to place what's uh, what's going to keep students safe and top of mind. And so I hope that they make their decisions accordingly. Mark Hill, I know a lot of times people look at these stories about what's going on with law enforcement and that relationship, and they think it's something that is happening elsewhere. Do you think people pay attention enough attention to what's happening right here at home? I, I don't think so. And that actually came up several times in the report is, it would be, I'm so-and-so, I'm a former administrator, and I never witnessed any racism, and uh, the SLO was was very kind to me, etc. But, um, you know, we've had students for decades going to administrators saying that they're experiencing racism and, and having their voices be silenced. And and in this situation, again, we're, we're getting students saying that they are experiencing harm from police in schools. Um, currently here in Vancouver 2021. So I think that that's the most important part of this report. So if you could say something to the Vancouver School Board about this, what would you tell them? I'd say for them to um, protect the most vulnerable students in their schools and to come up with better community-based solutions for um, programs like the SLO program. It isn't primarily in place for safety, um, a lot of what the program's there for is for recreation, and we can supplement that in a number of other ways. What do you think would be a better use of the resources? Um, I think having more resources go into community programs that are going to keep kids safe and engaged in their community to help better themselves is one way that we can 
we can reuse those resources, but I think that it's going to take more consultation and not just my opinion or one group's opinion. Um, I think that it'll be an ongoing conversation and, and the VSB needs to start to form a relationship with some of those marginalized communities to come up with positive solutions. What has that been like then dealing with the Vancouver School Board? Are you saying they haven't been forming those relationships with the community? Oh, I'm not saying that, um, but Argyle actually noted that, is that it was difficult um, for them to engage with the Indigenous and Black communities because there was no pre-existing relationship with the VSB. Um, it has been difficult to um, speak at VSB meetings, especially with the new rules limiting speakers and, and the reasoning behind. You really have to have a a, a procedural reason to be put onto the agenda. So they've made it more difficult. Um, so I just hope that they welcome uh, community groups and stakeholders to the table and have open conversations and try to come up with solutions. Well, Mark Hill, thanks so much for your time this morning. Thanks, Amy. Mark Hill Simpson is a member of the BC Community Alliance Steering Committee talking about this uh, meeting that's happening tonight with the Vancouver School Board where they are discussing the School Liaison Officer Program. That's the SLO uh, program that Mark Hill was talking about there. It has run since 1972 and there are currently about 15 constables and two sergeants from the Vancouver Police Department along with some RCMP officers who serve schools that are on the University Endowment lands. But essentially, this program is fully funded by the Vancouver Police Department and it puts these officers in schools in, you know, the Vancouver School District. So this review, it was conducted by Argyle Communications. If you go online to globalnews.ca, you can actually click on the link and you can lead and it'll lead you to reading the entire review if you would like. But overall, it found, quote, a lack of understanding of what the SLO program is and how it serves the broader student population. So there will be discussion about whether or not this is a program that should continue or whether those police resources would be better put elsewhere. That's going on at the Vancouver School Board meeting tonight. And I know you'll be hearing a lot about it in the news and we'll let you know what happens too. This is Mornings with Simi. How would you like to go to space? Like, I mean, make a serious commitment and effort to try to go to space. And we do love talking about space stories here on the show. And this one is about a Victoria man who really needs your help in making that dream of going to space happen. It is Brett Anderson, and he joins us now. Hi, Brett. Hey, how's it going? Good. So, Brett, what is going on here? What do you mean you want to go to space? How? Uh, well, anyway, I can really, but, um, yeah, there's a contest going on, put on by a Japanese entrepreneur who's taken eight random people from around the world, uh, on a SpaceX flight around the moon. And, uh, this is my dream. So I'm going for it. When would this happen? Uh, in 2023 is when they're projected to, uh, take off. Okay. So you want to get on board one of, this is kind of like, um, Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory. So you want to get on board, (laughs) you want this golden ticket, but how do you get one? Well, and that's kind of where I, I need everyone's help. I think when I went through the application process, all that you really do is just submit your information. You don't have an opportunity to kind of plead your case. So I made this video real quick, posted on my social media and said, hey, I need. I didn't just apply. Like, I really want this. So I want to get everybody's attention. So I made a video, posted it on my Instagram, and then uh, it just took off. And so hopefully I'm just trying to get his attention. If he sees how passionate I am, then maybe he'll give me the ticket. Huh. Okay. So let me ask you then, Brett, why should we help you with this? Uh, I mean, 
I think, you know, already in the last few days, this is crazy how it's taken off, but I think now this can be an opportunity to be a lesson for everybody and what what can happen if you really, you know, put yourself out there and follow your dreams. And uh, I think let's use this as an example to just see what happens when you when you do it. I mean, and we can try to help other people do it. I don't know. Why not? The moon. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> why not? Yeah, let's all go. Uh, what, do yeah. you, what do you do for a living, though? Like you say, you love this. You've always wanted to do this. How does your work reflect that? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I work in hospitality, and uh, I've, it's all I've ever really done. And just meeting people from all walks of life, and ju- I'm just a people guy, and I just think it's, it's something I love to do. I really love my job, and I love the fact that I just get to come in and, and meet people and, and chat with people all day. It's, uh, I'm pretty lucky that way. Okay, so let's let's pretend that this is your job interview for going to the moon. <laughs> what skills do you bring? If you're one of eight people going up to the moon, obviously you would need to have some skills that you know would benefit the group. What skills would you bring? Yeah, well, for the past decade, actually, my passion uh, side hobby has been uh, photography and and videography and filmmaking. And so I've been, uh, what I do on my weekends, I go on adventures. I've gone on surf and climbing trips around the world and document them and make videos to kind of bring the audience, audience along with me. And I think having the opportunity to do this and bring the whole world with me would be, uh, you know, that would be a great, great way of putting my skills to use, I think. I like that. Yeah. Okay. So you came close before though, right? Like you have won a contest about this before I understand. Yeah, I did. And that's where this is, uh, you know, getting kind of crazy. Uh, In 2015, Land Rover hosted a global competition in which he submitted a video to define what adventure means to you. And I submitted my video and I won the Canadian National Prize and then I won the World Grand Prize. And unfortunately, the shuttle that I was supposed to fly on ended up crashing. And so they had to give me a separate prize. But because I'd come so close, I could almost taste it. I just can't help but feel optimistic that this uh this might be my shot and hopefully it's second time's a charm not third (laughs) okay so brett the idea that your ride crashed the first time did not deter you from trying this again no not at all i think (laughs) uh you know i've been asked that a few times even people sending videos of uh, some of elon's latest rockets uh not landing (laughs) perfectly but um you know i think life's too short to not take some risk that it really when it comes to following your dreams you just got to do it i'd rather take that risk and do something incredible in my short time on this planet then um then not go for it all right well where can we help you what can we do well i just posted another video last night and i think that the to really get his attention i need some fame and some superstars so actually i just posted a video last night that now i'm trying to get our local canadian bc legend ryan reynolds on board and you utilize his right. super charismatic abilities so <laughs> we're trying to tag him to see if we can use his charisma to maybe get his attention but you can tag yusaku Maizawa. He's all over social media, every kind. Um, you can find me on my Instagram and Brett Anderson, and be, you'll find the video really easily and just tag him, uh, Yusaku, in it. And that's just what we're trying to do is really just okay. blow him up and see if he, we get his attention. All right. Well, if you win, I expect you to come back and tell us all about it. Brett, thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That's Brett Anderson, a Victoria man who needs your help to get to the moon. This is Mornings with Simi. We've been having an ongoing conversation about the challenges facing individuals who live with ALS right here in BC. To talk more about that this morning, we're joined by Dr. John Stossel, who's the head of neurology in the Faculty of Medicine at UBC. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning, and thank you for having me. Well, this is such a fascinating topic. How does ALS affect the brain? 
Well, the main effects of ALS are actually on the areas of the brain responsible for motor control, although different from other disorders that affect motor functions, such as Parkinson's disease. Uh, So people develop progressive weakness, but that can affect all their muscles, including the muscles responsible for breathing and swallowing, which is one of the reasons it's such a terrible disease. So do we know what causes it at this point or how common it is here in BC? Uh, There are about 400 people with ALS in BC. um, And one of the issues, again, compared to other neurodegenerative diseases, is that the survival in ALS is is fairly limited, as you know, quite tragically. Uh, We don't really know too much about cause, um, In a few people, there may be genetic contributions, but in the majority, I think that's not felt to be the case. And so really, the important work going forward is to understand or better understand the mechanisms that contribute to ALS. Right. The last time we talked about this, I know that we heard about how treatment options are really limited here. Why is that? Well, to be honest, I think the main reason is that we just don't understand enough about the disease. And even when we think we understand about ALS and other degenerative conditions, translating that into something clinically useful is quite challenging, actually. Um, So there are a number of mechanisms that people can uh, look at that would include inflammation Uh, abnormal folding of protein that gets clumped in cells, um, abnormal excitatory transmission in the nervous system, but trying to translate those concepts into therapies that are safe and effective is a much bigger challenge than people realize. Is that getting better, though? I know there's been a lot of money kind of invested into research in recent years. Yeah, I think I always try to be optimistic about these things, and I I do feel that there are major advances made in the neurosciences at breakneck speed. Um, So those are definitely things to be positive about. One of the things that's really important, I think, is to bring together the community of clinicians and scientists who are interested in these conditions, because if they're working in isolation, we're kind of doomed to failure in terms of developing new therapies. So I understand that there's some funding for a newly created position at UBC. How is that going to help out with this situation? Well, the fundraising is still underway, although it has uh, moved along very quickly. And so we're all feeling very optimistic about that. I think what it will do is what our hope is that it will allow us to recruit a clinician scientist. So that's somebody who can straddle both the clinical side and the research side, which is so important for moving the field forward. Now, we also heard that one of the other ways that patients can get help is if they're in a clinical trial. Is that right? Yeah. So clinical trials uh, are important for several reasons. One, I think, and the hope that we heard expressed when you spoke with Brad before is simply the hope that something is being done and also to have some degree of autonomy in a condition that robs one of autonomy, that you can actually 
take some control and participate in uh, trying to find a solution. But um, there are also challenges with clinical trials because sadly, and this is true not only for ALS but for many other conditions, is a concept may come up that makes sense if you're a mouse, but it may not necessarily translate into being a human with the disease. I think it is particularly problematic in ALS because it is such an aggressive disease. And it still is, right? Like, has anything changed on that front in terms of helping patients, like with comfort or stemming those symptoms at all? Well, we're very fortunate in BC that we do have an excellent multidisciplinary program for care of people with ALS run out at uh, GF Strong. And that has actually been an award-winning program. Multidisciplinary care is really important for um, the management of a lot of chronic diseases. But in terms of having treatments that have a major impact on the course of the disease, no, I would have to say we haven't really got anywhere near where we need to be. There are some new treatments that have been approved for use, relatively new, uh, that have been approved for use in Canada, but the impact really is pretty limited. Well, where can people get more information, Dr. Stossel? Uh, probably through the ALS Society of BC would be the best place to start. There's all kinds of information that's always available on the internet, but I always caution people to be very careful about how you interpret that information. And to not, while we all want to look forward to something better for the future, I think one also wants to avoid a sense of false hope. Well, thank you very much for joining us to talk about it this morning. Thanks very much for having me.